millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You want to know what the best email marketing service is for your small business? Well, I've got the team for you. EmailToolTester.com is the place to find reviews and tutorials of newsletter services like ActiveCampaign, MailChimp, GetResponse, and many more. Download their free comparison spreadsheet that will help you find the best email marketing service among many providers. Just Google email tool tester comparison template to find it. Again, just Google it. Email tool tester comparison template to find it. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Margaret Malloy. She's the Global Chief Marketing Officer and Head of Business Development for the brand agency Siegel & Gale. She's got over 25 years of experience as a senior marketing executive. And today on the show, Margaret and I tackle brand simplicity, when you rebrand, and what are the potential benefits of a rebrand, both in terms of measures like awareness, but also financial impact to the company. So I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Margaret Malloy. Margaret, welcome to the show. Hello, Alan. Delighted to be with you. What a thrill to get the opportunity to speak with your audience. Well, I appreciate it. And it's always fun. Like we were talking before we turned on the mic. It's always fun to talk to a friend, somebody you already know. So it's 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 a joy to have you on the show. Sorry, Alan, I'm hoping that means you're going to go easy on me. So no hard questions. I want the friends and family treatment. I don't know. I think because we're friends, you get harder questions. No, I'm, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I do want to just start off on the personal front because you've got Two strapping young boys. I see pictures on Facebook from time to time. I have a daughter and have never had a boy. So what is it like to raise two boys in the city? 
Just curious. I think I am extraordinarily privileged, Alan, both to be the mom of two teenage boys, but also to live in New York City. We are so fortunate here. There is unparalleled access to culture. New York City is truly a wonderful place to raise children. Now, I'm sure any parent who's raising teenagers will acknowledge that this is a difficult era to raise children in. So many distractions, social media, video games, turbulent conversations in our climate that makes parenting probably the hardest and maybe the job that we're least qualified to do, all of us. But certainly being in New York every day, I I feel very, very fortunate. I've always heard the, um, I mean, New York is a fantastic place to visit. I've never lived there. I would love to, though, at some point. But the thing I've always heard about raising girls is it's, it's easy at the beginning and hard at the end. And boys, I'm assuming, might be the opposite. They get a little easier in the teenage years, but I don't know. Let's see. How about you have me back in 10 years and, and we reconnect on that question? I love it. Love it. I love it. Well, let's talk business. So I know a little bit about your career, but for listeners' perspectives, I would love to, you know, for context, if you'd tell us a little bit about your career path and how you ended up at Siegel and Gale. Thank you, Alan. So I'm a native of Ireland, as the accent may betray. And when I finished college, I accepted a job with Enterprise Ireland. That's the Irish government agency responsible for growing Irish industry abroad. I came to America, so my first job out of college was in America, and the opportunities and possibilities that that afforded me exceeded anything I could have dreamed about in Ireland. What's most important, I think, is what I learned from that role. That role taught me the power of purpose and mission. The mission of Enterprise Ireland was helping grow the Irish economy through exports. And that mission translated for me at a very personal level of recognizing that I was helping my colleagues get jobs in Ireland. So that was the first real sort of era in my career that was very foundational in developing me as a marketer and as a purpose-led executive. Subsequently, I went to work for the Irish Telecoms Agency, and in that role, I was focused on economic development and inward investment, so promoting the country of Ireland as a location for American companies. Similarly, a very mission-oriented role. And what was interesting from a learning standpoint in that context was the fact that we had very few resources. And I was a relatively new college grad that had to do everything from advertising to PR to assembling a booth at a trade show and having to do everything having the responsibility and also the requirement to do everything gave you a certain strength. And I believe that's translated into subsequent years of making me unstoppable and maybe a little fearless as a marketer. So after that formative years working for Irish government agencies, I decided to take my graduate work. So I went to the Harvard Business School, took an MBA program there. And of course, as you would expect with an MBA, it gives you that strategic thinking and frameworks to anchor all your marketing in desired business outcomes. After business school, I went for many years to mainstream technology companies in the United States, my first stop being Siebel Systems, the CRM giant. At that company, I started in product marketing, got involved in account-based marketing and sales enablement. 
So in all of these roles, I characterize my career as doing tours of duty in different marketing functions. And about a decade ago, I realized there was one function that I was missing. And it was a function that was coming incredibly important. And that was brand. And that's why I decided to leap at the opportunity when I was invited to join Siegel & Gale, one of the world's preeminent branding agencies as CMO. I love it. Siegel and Gale's done phenomenal work over the years. Obviously, as a brand person myself, it's one that it's an organization that I've followed over the years. And I know you work on a lot of rebrands and we've actually never covered that topic in, in depth on the show. And I would love to know when should a company rebrand? When should they be thinking about that? It's a wonderful question. I would preface it, Alan, by saying, let's think about what is the brand. So from an economic standpoint, brand is the most valuable, intangible asset and can represent anything around one-fifth of the total market value of a company. So that's the most important thing to anchor the discussion in, the importance of brand as asset. When you look at rebranding, I would say there are a number of elements to think about. The name of the company, the visual identity, the brand purpose, brand strategy, and activation. So those are the components of a rebrand, and they can be dialed up or down depending on the context. Now, I'll get to the heart of your question, which essentially is, what are the scenarios for rebranding and when does it make sense? Very typical one, mergers, acquisitions, or divestitures. A company combines or spins off part of itself and therefore essentially needs to stand up a new company. That's scenario one. Another popular scenario is when a new CEO arrives or indeed CMO and their ambition for the brand exceeds the current status of that brand. Hence, let's do a rebrand. A third scenario and one that's becoming increasingly common in our very dynamic business climate is the recognition on the part of a company that they need to reposition. Repositioning can be motivated by a desire to capture a new customer base or a recognition that their existing narrative and physical representation and visual representation of that is no longer contemporary. Another scenario that's quite frequent is reputational issues. So a company has been damaged by news items or some behavior on the part of an executive at the company or some inappropriate actions that renders it vital to consider what the brand is today and perhaps the need to rebrand. And I suppose the final one I'd say is, and there are many, but these are the main buckets, is when companies come to a recognition that there is, if you will, a sea of sameness in their category, that all the brands in insert category are beginning to look the same and sound the same and be indistinguishable. So rebranding presents an opportunity for the team to revisit and stand out in the category. But Alan, those are all scenarios. What I've learned over my decade or so working in branding is the most important thing agnostic to these categories is to answer the following question for the executive team when rebranding. And the question is something like this. Is it a change of sign or a sign of change? Meaning, is there a strategic imperative for the rebrand? And is there a commitment to a strategic change on the part of the customer experience and employee experience? Otherwise, it's cosmetic. And that's 
flawed as a starting point and will not generate the kind of outcomes that the brand leadership is desirous of having. Gotcha. Rebrands are also, I don't know, costly is not the right word, but they are highly complex usually and quite a sizable effort. How do you think about or how do you advise you know clients to think about the ROI on a rebrand? Well, first I get back to the basics and ask, why are you trying to achieve the rebrand. So which of these scenarios, what does success look like? And again, re-emphasizing that important acknowledgement that it is a signal, but is it a large, it should signal a strategic change, not just a cosmetic one. And then we talk about what are the benefits of rebranding. So at a very high level, I would say there are three. It could reestablish brand relevance, raise awareness for a company or its offerings in the market or among its targets. And thirdly, it presents an opportunity to redefine a business model. So if those are the benefits and those are the objectives, then we think about, okay, so how do we evaluate success? So a couple of very basic, basic steps, I would say. Define the objectives, Collect benchmark data such that post-activation of the brand, you are in a position to do comparisons. And the very basic framework that I think about has essentially three components. The first is look at your brand awareness after the rebrand and after the activations. So look at metrics like followers, relevance, social engagement, customer reviews on platforms like Yelp, in the B2B realm user groups, and see if you've moved the needle in that category, awareness. Next, when you get past awareness, look at performance. So this is a gauge of metrics around your consumer behavior, leads, sales, close rates on deals, ability to command a price premium, loyalty, NPS scores, customer referrals. So those are the behavioral metrics. And then finally, you look at the financial metrics and compare metrics on how customer behavior has actually generated financial results or economic value. So look at revenue, profitability, margins, customer acquisition costs, market share. So those metrics go in the natural progression from awareness, performance to financial. And the important thing is having the benchmarks and then being able to do the comparison. But vital to all of this is knowing why you're measuring a particular metric and why it matters to your brand. And that will vary, as you and I know from our consulting perspective, in the context of which the brand is operating. No, absolutely. Absolutely. That's really helpful that the way that you laid out all of those, you know, awareness, performance and financial metrics. I don't think most people take in consideration the entire totality, if you will. To your point, they're focused on one aspect of what they're trying to do, whether it's maybe price premium or awareness only. But brand does definitely ripple through for sure. Well, it does. And I think part of what you're outlining here are essentially some of the pitfalls, Alan. I mean, the pitfalls for that are dictating success or failure of success for rebrands include things like thinking beyond the marketing department, acknowledging that brand is more than words and pictures. It's about the customer experience, 
running out of resources before the launch and spending all of your emotional and financial and resource capital on getting the new launch, getting the new logo, getting the new language, and not leaving any money or mojo for the activations. These are pitfalls that can often reverberate through the whole experience. And therefore, sometimes, to your point, it gets reflected in a narrow interpretation of what the metrics ought to be. One thing I've always admired about you and about Siegel and Gale is, one, that you're almost synonymous with the phrase simplicity. And I think that's by design and very thoughtful. But also the fact that it's a brand agency or branding consultancy that eats its own dog food. (laughs) So use a very, I think, American term or phrase. So how do you guys, I mean, one, how do you think about branding yourselves? And then I would love for you to talk about the notion of simplicity and how that's such an important concept for your company. Certainly. We believe simple is smart. And that is the ethos upon which the company was founded 50 years ago. So you've absolutely identified in your question our core. When I think about this, Alan, I think about when simplicity is done well. And I really believe when simplicity is done well, it brings productivity instead of paralysis. It brings confidence instead of confusion and ultimately customer trust instead of angst. So with that in mind as the contrast between environments that are simple and environments that are complex... It might be useful to dimensionalize simplicity because, frankly, although it sounds very plain spoke or plain speak, it's actually very often misunderstood. So I would say there are maybe five elements to simplicity. The first is ease of understanding. Second, transparency. Third, consistency. Fourth, fresh approach to product delivery or marketing. And finally, utility making people's lives easier. So if you think of simplicity, not as this grand abstract notion, but rather as manifesting itself from a customer experience standpoint across these dimensions, it makes it more actionable. And over the years, I spend time with a lot of marketing executives, friends of yours and mine and our clients. And my insight on the back of that experience is, The genius of simplifiers is knowing what to strip away from an experience, design, or language. That's where genius comes in. To some degree, when people misunderstand simplicity, it's because they're taking a very reductive approach. They're just cutting away. But real and true simplifiers know what a brand stands for, know their customers so well that they can be very discerning in that editorial process. And that's when you and I as consumers experience brands that we really appreciate. And our research has revealed time and time again that consumers reward brands that provide them simpler experiences. They reward them by their loyalty. They reward them in their ability and willingness to pay more for brands that provide simpler experiences. And they also reward them in referring those brands to their customers. So a lot of thinking around simplicity and a lot of rigor around how we help our clients apply it in their context. I think simplicity is a fantastic concept, not just because you're doing it, but uh, you live it. 
day to day as well. And um, one of the things as I was doing research about Siegel and Gale, and this may have been a, a mistake on my on my part, but I historically thought, you know, you were focused on B2B. But as I was looking at some of the cases on your website, that's not necessarily the case. You've, you've done work in consumer world with folks like Wyndham Hotel Group or CVS or Flywheel. So I'm just curious, do you have a bent towards B2B or is it wide open? And I would love to talk to you a little bit more about B2B in a second too. Certainly, Alan. We're we're fortunate to be selected by brands across practically every industry category. We started from that place of simplification. And that in our early days was a very attractive proposition to B2B companies because most B2B companies recognize that they are indeed complex. So our notion that simple is smart had a lot of appeal to them. So as a result, your insight is is spot on in that many of our early clients were in the B2B sector Today in 2020, we're split quite down the middle between B2B, B2C, and even some government clients across the world. Well, let's talk a little bit about B2B because it's also a topic that I haven't covered in depth on the, on the show. And what is the current state of B2B or brand in B2B? I don't know if you remember this, but we've both worked at technology clients and, and on the B2B client side in the past. And there was a time when... I didn't even want to use the word brand, frankly. It was like this dirty word. <laughs> it's definitely not anymore, but there was a time when it when it was. And so I would love to just get an updated view of what brand in B2B organizations looks like today. That's such an interesting memory that you're bringing forward. I recall those days and you know how one gets around these situations is often semantic. So I recall using words that are essentially synonyms. I use the word reputation. And suddenly, suddenly that was okay, particularly in B2B companies that were services organizations. Reputation, that was important. So I think your insight is accurate to some degree. And we're on a journey, essentially, Alan. In many B2B companies, brand is still not the center of gravity. It could be in product areas or in sales that really call the shots. So I'm acknowledging that as a, as a preface to responding to your core question, which is why are B2B companies thinking about brand these days? I would identify a number of reasons why, as to why B2B companies are paying more attention And that's manifesting itself in hiring more talent in their marketing organization and putting more resource into brand. Number of things I would suggest. The first is the greatest myth about the B2B buyer is that because they are buying in a business context, that the individual operates in a purely rational way. That is a myth, Alan. And that's a myth that has been long perpetuated in the B2B category. But we're learning now that emotions play a huge role in purchase behavior in both B2B and B2C. In B2B, I would go so far as to say emotions are even at a higher intensity because often it's someone's job who's on the line. So that's why brand comes in. Brand helps create trust and mitigates risk. So if you've established a brand and built a brand in B2B, it actually is a very powerful asset. And of course, I would layer on, if you impose simplicity on it, it's even greater again. Second observation that's more contemporary, which is the reality that 
in every business category in B2B today, the buyers have a dizzying array of choices. There is more product, more marketing automation technology, more services organizations, more everything in every B2B category that any consumer needs. And partly, and what does that mean? Well, that means because of the ease and flow of information, it's very easy for a company's products to be copycat. It's very hard for a company to differentiate itself based on product features and functionality. Enter brand. By creating a brand, you are attributing much more to that company and product and offering than just the feature function. It provides an easier framework for a buyer to pick a custom, pick a particular solution. The third important comment I would make around why brand matters in B2B is a demographic one. Millennials have come of age and they are now participating in the B2B buying process in their droves in companies. Depending on which study you look at, 50 to 75% of the people participating in the decision-making process in companies today are millennials. And as we know, that population grew up with all kinds of expectations from brands. Their expectations from B2B companies in terms of brand experience are formed by their personal consumer behavior as it pertains to online banking or shopping or whatever it is. And I'd further go so far as to say that the behaviors that they are instigating and the expectations they are setting have become the expectations across generations as all generations are adopting these modes of communications. And finally, to kind of hammer home the case of why I firmly believe brand matters in B2B, I'd point out the changes in business models. When you and I started, if you talk about technology, there was the phenomena of the large enterprise sale, big technology, big servers, big software licenses, for example, in tech. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, that's changed too. If you look at the business models, so much of in tech, for example, with the cloud is fulfilled through e-commerce or a lot of the business models are actually freemium. So inherent in that is the customer's first experience with the brand is a small one. It's not writing the big check. And their decision to renew, as it were, is predicated on the brand experience as a user. So all of these reasons, B2B buyers are people too. There's so much choice, it's hard to differentiate around product. Millennials are making buying decisions and evolving business model, in my mind, makes the case for brand being more and more important than ever before for B2B companies. 
Yeah, no, I, I, you're spot on, on many, many of those things. And it's so true that all of that has evolved to create an entirely different context for B2B branding that's needed now. One additional thing I would add is I feel like marketing as a function and the marketing leaders, frankly, have become more sophisticated, more respected, more valued inside their organizations in terms of the value that they can drive as well. And I think that just helps elevate marketing as a function, but also brand as an element of that. I think that's, yeah, I think that's inaccurate. And I see it myself among our peers. It's a different type of professional that's taking on that role now. And it's a product that was maybe 10, 20 years in the making when these B2B companies went to top tier business schools or other places to recruit talent. So now we're at the point where this talent is in a decision-making role and they have a large toolkit to bring to the conversation around brand that's helping them internally advocate for an investment in brand. So it's, it's a wonderful time, I believe, to be in our business. Well, I want to talk, you guys have executed some research within the last year, and we were at a summit together this past fall where you led a workshop around around that research on the world's simplest brands. And I found it fascinating. There was a lot of arguing about which brand goes where as we were doing the exercise that you were leading us through. And it was a lot of fun, frankly, for a bunch of marketing geeks that were in the room. But I would love to know, tell me a little bit about the research and how simplicity is is represented in it. And then I would love to know, you know what you're seeing in terms of how simplicity pays off for businesses. Certainly. So we've been conducting this study for about a decade now. And this in the study, we ask more than 15,000 people across nine countries in Europe, US and Asia, India and the Middle East to evaluate a list of brands and industries on their simplicity. So it's a consumer survey, primarily B2C brands. So we're flipping now to B2C. And essentially, we tabulate the results in what ends up becoming a ranking of brands in every country that they are evaluating. And we come up with the world's simplest brand and the brands in every country. So I'll share with you in a minute what the world's simplest brand was last time. But at a macro level, I touched on earlier what the learnings were from the study beyond the intrigue of the beauty contest that is a ranking. The first learning is simplicity earns a premium. In the study, 55% of people indicated that they are willing to pay more for simpler experiences. And we should touch on that in a second because simplicity and brand, in fact, is more than just words and pictures. Brand now is all about the customer experience. So I want to underline that experience word when I say consumers willing to pay more for simpler brands. Second thing is simplicity builds loyalty. 64% of the people we studied indicated that they are more likely to recommend a brand that delivers simpler brand experiences. And finally, and this one will be interested to you, I know as a business geek, we also looked at the stock charts of the companies that ranked highest in every market. And this was a fun learning. If you look at a stock portfolio of the top 10 brands in the index, they way outperformed all the market indices in every country. So what that's telling us is Wall Street rewards simplicity as well. So those were the 
kind of the economic learnings. I'll take people out of their suspense and reveal that Netflix was the winner. Netflix is the world's simplest brand. And when you and I think about our own behavior as consumers, it's probably not entirely surprising. The user interface is simple. It's a convenient way to experience entertainment. If you go back over the dimensions that I outlined earlier, utility, consistency, convenience, freshness, all of that is manifest beautifully in Netflix. And I also find it personally validating and interesting that their stock has done so well in the S&P over the last decade. Because to me, that's interesting. We touched on this very beginning of this conversation when we asked, and you gave me the opportunity to outline my career trajectory. And at the heart of that is, I love brands, I love marketing, but most of all, I love anchoring marketing in business strategy, in business outcomes. So that's why I'll always bring it back to how's the company doing from a profitability standpoint and the ultimate metric, perhaps, how is its stock performing for a publicly traded company? I love it. And interesting thing, too, I took away the top five, if I've got it correct, three of them are international brands. So Aldi, Lidl, and Carrefour. And you've got global brand of Google thrown into the mix, too. But (laughs) it was interesting to me that three of those and two of, well, all three of them actually are retailers, too. Says something about the retail landscape, I think, outside the U.S. And maybe potentially growing inside the U.S. with Aldi and Lidl's entry here. So it's an interesting piece. The other thing that was putting my American-centric hat on, uh, I was looking at the U.S. listing and trying to figure out who was on bottom. And it w- wasn't surprising, frankly, the traditional cable companies and health insurers, which are so complicated. And I guess it, <laughs> some might say, you don't need to say this, but some might say it's a fight to the death down there on who's the worst brand to be. I think that's a very accurate commentary. Of course, wearing the hat I do, I see it as an opportunity for a brand to break through and be out of category. So let me tell you a little story that probably goes against my own heritage, if you'll indulge me. If you look at the airline category, for example, fairly consistently over the years, Ryanair, the low cost category, the low cost player in Europe has come up close to the bottom. You would think, okay, their message is very simple. We guarantee a certain price, very easy enough to go on and buy your flights. And you would think they should perform in a certain way. Say they perform poorly. Then you might say, well, look, it's a complex category, air travel, a lot of things can go wrong. But actually, look at Southwest. Same business model, low-cost carrier, fundamentally same business go-to-market strategy, but they have broken out of the airline category. They were not doomed to be in that mid-to-bottom layer. They've done quite well. And to me, the insight there is you're not relegated as a brand to be in your category. You can simplify and break out of your category. It's not predestined. That's exciting. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. And as consumers, as people, we don't necessarily think about the category when we think about the businesses that we like to do business with. Yes, if I'm going to go air travel, I'm I'm thinking about airlines. But if I um, am thinking about comparing that airline experience, I'm comparing it against cross-category experiences that I'm having other places. So that's a great, great point. 
Well, it is 2020. And uh, one of my questions I was going to ask you at the beginning, I kind of skipped over, but I want to come back to it, was as you look at 2020, just curious if there are any priorities that you're seeing from your clients or things that you believe are top of mind as we enter this new decade. Certainly. I'll offer three, Alan, and I'd love your feedback as to whether they resonate in your experience and your conversations, because I know, like myself, you're out there talking to a lot of brand leaders as well. The first trend is a resurgence in the interest in brand and purpose. Brands are recognizing now that they have to make bold choices and stand for or against something. If you think about Nike's Kaepernick campaign as a poster child, what some might call controversial, Nike called that a win, and it's reflected in their bottom line as well. Many brands are afraid of the backlash of taking a bold stance, but it's becoming a key success factor. And the viewpoint for a lot of brands is keeping your loyal customers and employees fanatical pays bigger dividends than trying to please everyone. So purpose, trend number one. Trend number two, the evolution of brand building to mean brand experience. I touched on this idea earlier because I think it's so important. Brands are moving from words and pictures, logos and taglines to brand experience. So back when you and I started our career, the definition of brand was probably tied very closely to words and pictures. Today, it's every element, every way a consumer touches your brand. So that has huge implications for resourcing of brand building. I would say to you that the great brand leaders that I have the privilege to work with aspire to today building movements, not monuments around their brands. The third thing, and it's been a theme of this conversation, is the quest for simplicity. Savvy marketers are focusing on creating simpler brand experience and ensuring that that filters down throughout the entire customer journey. I think of it personally as a renewed emphasis on reducing what I call the cognitive effort required of buyers or users to do business with a company. And that's everything from the messaging to the brand communications to the brand identity and all of that being assessed through the lens of simplicity. So those are the three things that bubble up to me in the conversations I'm having with brand leaders in 2020. Yeah, I would agree with all three of those. There's definitely things that people are talking about acting on and, and the like. I will add one more, but I think it underscores all three that you've mentioned is that brand pays. And what I mean by that is I think with some of the research that we've seen actually coming out of the UK with Benet and I'm blanking on the other person's name from the the International Planning Association, IPA, IPG, I believe, just in terms of the mix of how you're spending your money, you know, for short-term and long-term benefit and brand building as being a component of the long-term building benefit, that the optimal mix is to make sure you have a mix. There's so many technology brands and I think SaaS companies in particular get a bad rap for this, focused purely on the growth hacking, the demand gen piece. Um, and I think I've seen smarter marketers in that realm wake up and realize that, wait, demand is not just a search engine marketing. It's what makes someone click on that first ad in the Google search engine. That makes a big difference. Such a great point, Alan. And I think if you peel that back, 
it beautifully underlies and more eloquently than I expressed the notion that in every product category, in every SaaS product category, for example, there are many, many options and people copy really quickly because information flows quickly. The barriers to copying are low. So you can't just compete on feature function. So therefore, brand is a powerful filter. And I'm seeing this happen in enlightened tech companies because they're realizing They've overcorrected toward performance marketing. And now that pendulum is swinging to recognize that actually brand building is a very powerful asset that we need to invest in. One of the things I love to do is get to know the individual behind these business topics, if you will. And and we know you have two boys now, (laughs) two teenage boys. But I, I would also be kind of an idiot if I didn't ask you about your personal passion projects like hashtag wearing Irish. Tell us a little bit about that and and why you started. Oh, thank you. That that's a fun one and maybe a little unexpected. So I'll tell you the, the brief version and I'll invite and ask your readers and listeners, do please check out wearing Irish.com and Instagram and Twitter and all the usual social channels to get more in depth. But you're right, it is a passion project. And here's the, the short version of where it all began. It comes back to my core, Alan, because as a marketer, I'm a storyteller. And about five years ago, I discovered an untold story. Designers across the island of Ireland are producing world-class fashion, but no one outside Ireland, even among the Irish diaspora like myself, could name an Irish fashion designer. So I created hashtag wearing Irish to change that. What began as a hashtag fast forward to today is now an event program, a website, and really in its own way, a movement around identifying and providing Irish designers access to world markets. So it's an exciting project. And in this context, though, in in the context of our audience and our peers, I think what's relevant is the notion that I believe I'm a better CMO at Siegel and Gale because of my passion project, because it's given me much more empathy toward brand builders, because I'm frankly on a shoestring trying to build a brand myself. And it's also been a wonderful icebreaker. People will come up to me and talk about it. And we all buy from people we like. So if you have a dimension to your personality and your contribution to society that engenders likability, then everyone wins. And those are beautiful unintended consequences to my embracing a passion project. I love it. I love it. And it's so true that we need to continue to practice what we're talking about and building a a smaller brand like you you are on a shoestring, creating a podcast and trying to get that out to the world. These are all fun experiments and things that keep us learning, keep us on our toes. So it's fun to hear about it. Another question for you on the personal front. I love, this is probably my favorite question I ask everyone that comes on the show, but is there an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? It's your favorite question and it's my least favorite question. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. That may be why it's my favorite. I don't know. This is where we, aren't we supposed to get vulnerable and, and all of that? This is that question and it's not my comfort zone, but I'll try. How about that? I'll try to answer. And I think, I think for me, I've touched on it already. I grew up the eldest of six children on a dairy farm in Ireland. And in Ireland, I learned in that capacity, I learned about relationships, actually, and the importance between keeping your promises, 
committing to hard work and contributing to the community and how those factors were drivers in building an outstanding reputation. And now as a grown up in a marketing function, when I reflect on it, I recognize that actually those are the very same attributes that contribute to building a successful brand, keeping your promises, doing the hard work, contributing to the community. Those help individuals build brands, but I would offer they are also essential to building any product or service brand as well. No, that's a great point. That's a great point. And being the oldest of six, that is a lot of people looking up to you. <laughs> for, for lack of a better way to describe that. And on a dairy farm, no less, that does sound like a lot of hard work. I don't know if they put you to work earlier or not, but that sounds like a lot of work. Well, a lot of people competing at the dinner table for a conversation as well. So a lot of good things come from it. But I think also, frankly, if you parlay that experience into how I identify today, which is an immigrant in the United States, Really, as a very practical matter, I came to the U.S. over 20 years ago knowing no one. And I love this country, fell in love with New York the moment I got off that airplane at JFK. But I also realized that I would just have to hustle and network and meet people. And funnily enough, those were skills that I had to build to survive. Now they've become what we call distinctive strengths. So in a funny way, those hard-won skills can actually set you apart in a context that's different. Well, I've got two last questions for you, more on the marketing front, but marketers tend to be kind of students of what's going on around them. And I'm curious if there's any brands or companies or causes that you follow, obviously besides wearing Irish, that you think others should, should be taking notice of. So I'm going to mention CVS, and for a few reasons, I think it's noteworthy. It's now a Fortune 5 company and not a company that shouts very loudly about itself, but a company that really has the courage of its convictions. And I believe for a lot of us as marketers, we can learn a lot from CVS. So in 2013, they articulated their purpose as helping people on a path to better health. They also recognized that to be true to that purpose, they could no longer sell tobacco. So they made the difficult decision to take tobacco out of their stores. So that's a great example of a company really activating its promise. And that meant a loss of $2 billion in revenue. So they worked hard to essentially rejig their business strategy, to be mindful of this decision in their marketing. And the most interesting outcome of that is their combination with Aetna right now, because by positioning themselves, not as the corner drugstore, but rather as a health company, that paved the way for the right regulatory context for that merger to go ahead. And it gets better because just last year, they had the insight that when women look at ads for beauty products, very often they don't feel good about themselves. And how women are represented in beauty products can actually have implications on mental health. So watch out for a new program they're doing, which is essentially called the Beauty Mark, where they're putting marks on products to indicate whether the image on the package has been altered or not. And I love this because they took tobacco out of the store because they were committed to health. They recognized that heart disease and disease caused by tobacco was a major contributor to death in this country. But they did 
didn't stop at that. They looked at mental health and they saw an opportunity to affect change in that. And the reason why I love it is because we've talked about purpose, but this is a company who's actually making the bold decisions to bring purpose to life in very tangible ways. So certainly one of my favorite brands at the moment. Yeah, no, that's a great, great example. And I love the notion of the beauty market, talking about kids again, but having a 12-year-old, soon-to-be teenage girl, it's something that is constantly on my mind, the images that she's digesting, if you will, out into the world. So I love that. Congratulations on CVS doing that. I'm really proud of them for doing it. Well, last question for you. Do you feel like there is, say, a biggest opportunity or, or a biggest threat that's facing marketers as we look ahead into the future? I think the biggest threat is being overwhelmed. I see this in every client that I talk to and every peer in the marketing realm. There's so many choices, channels, technologies, marketing techniques that the tendency to not be able to prioritize for their teams and themselves can generate a lack of focus. And what I'm trying to do in my own sort of scholarly efforts is to identify the difference among the leaders who seem to be able to cope with this and those who are struggling. So I have an interview series that I do on our own blog called Simplifiers. And one of the traits that I've observed for the brands who do well in the simplicity index is actually they are led by CMOs who are simplifiers. Put plainly, they know how to prioritize. They know where their North Star is. And that's the key to sanity as a marketing leader, but also impact. And inherent in that, of course, to your comment, that's the challenge, to be able to not be overwhelmed. Well, Margaret, it's been fascinating and I've greatly enjoyed the conversation. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Alan. And, Alan, and thank you so much for giving me the platform to share my thoughts with your listeners. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart and this is Marketing Today. Marketing Today.